Hi, and welcome to the FBCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everyone who loves nature. We're coming to you from the beautiful campus of Flathead Valley Community College at the foot of the Swan Mountain Range of Northwest Montana. I'm John Fraley, longtime instructor in wildlife conservation here at the college, and I also served 40 years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. In the Nature Journal, we focus on the critters and quirks of nature found on the campus, the wide surrounding Flathead Basin, and all across Montana. Our producer is Colin Burkhardt, an employee here at FECC Library, and thanks to Morgan Ray, the library director for Offering Library as our podcast home. And today we have Christina Relier here, who's a professor at the Flathead Valley Community College and an expert in environmental resources, natural resources, and so on. How are you doing? Christina? Good, John. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's great. I'm sure glad that you decided to come on. And we're going to be talking about invasive species today, which is a big subject for natural resources here in the Flathead. First of all, let's define it. So you and I were talking, and we both teach classes, and we talk about invasive species, non-native species, introduced species, indigenous species, all these different terms. So how would you define, first of all, an invasive species? Well, John, they are species that can be deliberately introduced or accidentally introduced, but they're outside of their home range. And what makes them particularly bad is that they can maintain a sustainable population in their new home. And then that makes them invasive. Yeah, and great, great example of mysis in Flathead Lake and all the ecological perturbations it caused. You know, it's a non-native species that was introduced into Flathead Lake. And now it's, it's turned out all topsy-turvy. And it's very similar to the term non-native, right? I mean, if it's an if it's invasive species, it's also by definition non-native. Right, because it would have had to have come usually from another continent even right. to Montana or, you know, to anywhere else that it isn't found um, naturally. Right, and, you know, one interesting example is, of course, we have lake trout in Flathead Lake which is called an invasive species. But right over the hill, right over the divide, in St. Mary's Lake, we have native rain, uh, lake trout. <laughs> so right. That's kind of tough what, what to call it because it only came from, you know, 100 miles away instead of, as you said, like a pheasant coming from another continent, you know. Yeah, and it, that's similar to pike too, right? Yeah, So yeah. we have them on the west side, not native, but then native on the east side. Right. So you talked about the top threats to biodiversity. Tell us about that. Well, usually when I'm teaching my classes, what we tend to think of is that habitat destruction or alteration, introduced species, and overexploitation are the big three global threats to biodiversity. And in the United States, we're getting a pretty good handle on habitat destruction. But for Montana, our biggest problem in a lot of ways is invasives. If you look at the amount mm-hmm. of money that we spend on management and restoration and control, it's trying to stop these invasives either from coming here or trying to control them once they get here. And they can be all through the food chain. We could be talking about quagga mussels. We could be talking about something larger like a lake trout. Well, or even lately the feral hogs, right, that they <laughs> they have yeah. coming over on the high line. So yeah, well, that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> that is scary. So as far as the uh, ecological issues that this causes, you know, you're talking about release from population control. Explain that to the layman. 
Well, what that means is that the native environment that they originally came from, so like if we took something like the zebra mussel, it would be from the European continent. And what happens is they have their own predators there, their own diseases, their own pathogens. But when they're brought over here, and that was an accidental introduction, they're released from all that. There's nothing that has evolved to prey on them. Nothing has evolved to be a disease in North America for them. And so what that means is, is that there's no control. They can just reproduce, 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 reproduce. And oftentimes the very successful invasives are reproducing in really high numbers. And when you think about it, people used to kind of look at things in a way that, that we don't look at them today. For example, in McDonald Creek, how many of us have driven up McDonald Creek and you see those beautiful deep pools? And when the people first came or Euro-Americans first came, they said, hey, there should be more fish than that in here. Let's put some more fish in. And my, actually, my great uncle in the 20s was uh, worked for Glacier Transportation Company. He, he stocked tens of thousands of rainbow trout in McDonald Lake and McDonald Creek because people, when they saw an opening and there wasn't as many you know, usable species as they thought there should be, they would bring them over. Yeah, and that's actually what happens a lot of times is that someone will want to fish for their favorite thing or they'll want to hunt for a pheasant right. or something like that. But now we know that that actually can cause real damage to the ecosystem and problems. And this area that we're in, the crown of the continent, is actually our waters are mostly low-nutrient waters, so they naturally can't sustain really high numbers of aquatic organisms. One great example, another local great example, is Rogers Lake. Have any of you out there have been to Rogers Lake? It's a, our grayling capital, kind of, on this side of the divide. And it was really a great grayling fishery. Somebody introduced perch in there. The perch oh. took over. They lined up in front of the spawning tributary and just nailed all the young grayling that were coming out. And they completely wiped out Arctic grayling in mm -hmm. Rogers Lake. And then we had to poison it out. That cost $60,000 just for the rote known. And then restock grayling and, and cutthroat again. So... It, people don't realize how much harm they can cause. So we're talking about some of the aquatic invasives. What are some more aquatic invasives? Well, a great one that was just in the newspaper last week is the flowering rush that's in Flathead Lake. And it's a real problem down in the Polson Bay area. And one of the reasons is that it actually emerges two to three weeks earlier than our native bull rush, which we would have down in that area. And so it gets a jump on the native species so that it's already a couple inches tall before bulrush starts to emerge. Hmm. And it's also something called rhizomatis, so that even, it's like an iris bulb, like you break off a little piece of the root or the bulb and it can grow a whole new plant. And so that's an example of something that you can't control by pulling it because then you just make thousands more. Right, right. And so sometimes there's a problem with how can we control this, but oftentimes they outcompete the native organisms by, you know, emerging earlier in the season. So even, even aquatic plants, even to try to physically remove them can cause them to fragment and yes. spread. I remember that happening in a couple of other lakes that Fish Live Parks was trying to manage too. Yeah, so so it's a problem. You do not want to pull um, flowering brush, but it does outcompete the native brush and it can fill in the bay. Like if you've seen historical photos, another example would be cattails in some in Big Fork, that Daphne and Pond on Highway 35. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's historic photos where that's open you know, a hundred years ago, and now it's pretty much filled in with cattail. Now, I wasn't there a hundred years ago, but we did sample <laughs> Daphne, Daphne Upon when I went to the biological station in 1975, so it's a great sampling point. 
Yeah. And as you said, you know, I think then I think the cattails were already taking shape there. But what about uh, what about noxious weeds? Oh, goodness. We spend so much. That's where we, aquatics and noxious weeds, we spend a lot of money in Montana controlling. And we've spent millions of dollars trying to control the different variants of knapweed, for instance. And one of the problems with knapweed is that it actually makes its own herbicide in a way, it's called an allelochemical, and so it will actually keep other plants from growing around it, and then it reproduces in high numbers, and it can take over a field, and you can actually lose property value if you have noxious weeds in your pasture, for instance. Yeah, it's quite a problem. We could go on forever on that one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> How about the forest pests? Oh, that's the one that I work the most on, but white pine blister rust is a good example that affects all five needle pines that was we didn't have a stem rust which is a fungus in north america so when it hit our trees and it hits any pine that has five needles so some pines like ponderosa just have three right so white pine and white bark pine would be our two biggest examples but it can have up to a 90 to 92 percent kill rate in stands of white bark pine, for instance. And so we're actually, to try to combat that one, we're trying genetic studies and trying Mm -hmm. to get seeds for that 8% that's genetically resistant to white pine blister rust. Let me ask you something about that. So some of the noxious weeds we've actually proposed, and it's been done, to release bugs, different kinds of bugs that eat them, right? Right. Especially like in knapweed, there's a a bug. That kind of has some of its own issues that might occur, right? If you're releasing a non-native bug to eat a non-native plant. Well, exactly. And and so you've got to get a balance. And so we, that is one of our go-tos. It's a biological control. And usually the two most common are a tiny wasp. It's called a parasitoid wasp. And those wasps will lay their eggs inside a caterpillar. And then when the eggs hatch, they basically eat the caterpillar from the inside out. And the second one that you're talking about, like for controlling knapweed, is a little weevil, and that's Mm -hmm. in the beetle family. It is better than perhaps broad-scale chemical use, which might kill everything in a certain class, but we still don't know. You know, you are bringing an invasive to fight an invasive, and so what does that mean? So it's trying to figure out that balance. Right, and I know in the Bob Marshall, they actually have crews that spread and physically pull up certain plants. So even in the Bob Marshall, these weeds have spread into there. And let's let's jump ahead a little bit into uh, prevention. We just have a minute or two left here. What's one of the things you would talk about out for the public out there? What should they be thinking about to prevent the spread of these invasives? Well, the first thing is don't plant anything that you think you want to fish, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that goes without saying. Don't do it. The best thing would be even for landscaping, try to use native plants. Try to use things that are grown in Montana. And and the montanagov.gov website has a lot of information on plants that are native to the area, but education, and then also just not, you know, checking your boat for zebra mussel, yeah, for yeah, instance, follow, there's, there's, follow the rules, go to check stations. There's so much information out mm-hmm. there on that. And, and just to wrap it up, you know, it's people don't realize when they do that how much they're costing the public. I mean, think of how much it costs to do a, the Cutthroat Conservation Project where we removed 
non-native fish from 20 different mountain lakes and then restock them. I mean, that's expensive. Oh, the things yeah. you're talking about are expensive. All right, to wrap it up, I want to hear that story about Shakespeare's birds. It's got to be quick, though. Okay, well, <laughs> there was a man named Eugene Shefflin, and in the 1800s, they had a Shakespeare club in New York City, and they wanted to release every bird that was found in a Shakespeare play into Central Park. And so on March 6, 1890, Eugene released 60 European starlings. Oh. And today, there's over 200 million starlings in the United States from those original 60 birds. I know, they're all over the place. It just really bugs me. Yeah, and <laughs> so they cause a lot of crop damage, millions of dollars, and then they outcompete native bird species. Well, great thoughts, Christina. And you keep up the great work teaching those students. I know you're a very popular instructor here. And you've done great with this invasive species unit. And thanks a lot for coming on. Well, thank you, John. That's all the time we have for this edition of the FBCC Nature Journal. Thanks a lot. I'm John Fraley. I'll see you next week.